Chapter thirty one, part two of Life and Adventures of Martin Chuzzlewit. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Life and Adventures of Martin Chuzzlewit by Charles Dickens. Chapter thirty one, part two. But when he walked into the parlour where the old man was engaged, as Jane had said, with pen and ink and paper, on a table close at hand, for Mr. Pecksniff was always very particular to have him well supplied with writing materials, he became less cheerful. He was not angry, he was not vindictive, he was not cross, he was not moody, but he was grieved. He was sorely grieved. As he sat down by the old man's side, two tears— not tears like those with which recording angels blot their entries out, but drops so precious that they use them for their ink, stole down his meritorious cheeks. "'What is the matter?' asked old Martin. "'Pecksniff, what ails you, man?' "'I am sorry to interrupt you, my dear sir, and I am still more sorry for the cause. My good, my worthy friend, I am deceived.' "'You are deceived?' "'Ah!' cried Mr. Pecksniff in an agony, deceived in the tenderest point, cruelly deceived in that quarter, sir, in which I placed the most unbounded confidence, deceived, Mr. Chuzzlewit, by Thomas Pinch. "'Oh, bad, bad, bad,' said Martin, laying down his book. "'Very bad. I hope not. Are you certain?' "'Certain, my good sir. My eyes and ears are witnesses. I wouldn't have believed it otherwise.' I wouldn't have believed it, Mr. Chuzzlewit, if a fiery serpent had proclaimed it from the top of Salisbury Cathedral. I would have said, cried Mr. Pecksniff, that the serpent lied. Such was my faith in Thomas Pinch, that I would have cast the falsehood back into the serpent's teeth, and would have taken Thomas to my heart. But I am not a serpent, sir, myself, I grieve to say, and no excuse or hope is left me. Martin was greatly disturbed to see him so much agitated, and to hear such unexpected news. He begged him to compose himself, and asked upon what subject Mr. Pinch's treachery had been developed. "'That is almost the worst of all, sir,' Mr. Pecksniff answered, "'on a subject nearly concerning you. "'Oh, is it not enough,' said Mr. Pecksniff, looking upward, "'that these blows must fall on me, but must they also hit my friends?' "'You alarm me,' cried the old man, changing colour. "'I am not so strong as I was. You terrify me, Pecksniff.' "'Cheer up, my noble sir,' said Mr. Pecksniff, taking courage, "'and we will do what is required of us. "'You shall know all, sir, and shall be righted. "'But first, excuse me, sir, excuse me. "'I have a duty to discharge which I owe to society.' "'He rang the bell, and Jane appeared. "'Send Mr. Pinch here, if you please, Jane.' "'Tom came, constrained and altered in his manner, "'downcast and dejected, visibly confused, "'not liking to look Pecksniff in the face.' The honest man bestowed a glance on Mr. Chuzzlewit, as who should say, "'You see?' and addressed himself to Tom in these terms. "'Mr. Pinch, I have left the vestry window unfastened. Will you do me the favour to go and secure it? Then bring the keys of the sacred edifice to me.' "'The vestry window, sir?' cried Tom. "'You understand me, Mr. Pinch, I think,' returned his patron. "'Yes, Mr. Pinch, the vestry window. "'I grieve to say that sleeping in the church after a fatiguing ramble, "'I overheard just now some fragments,' he emphasized that word, "'of a dialogue between two parties, "'and one of them locking the church when he went out. "'I was obliged to leave it myself by the vestry window. 
Do me the favour to secure that vestry window, Mr. Pinch, and then come back to me. No physiognomist that ever dwelt on earth could have construed Tom's face when he heard these words. Wonder was in it, and a mild look of reproach, but certainly no fear or guilt, although a host of strong emotions struggled to display themselves. He bowed, and without saying one word, good or bad, withdrew. Pecksniff, cried Martin, in a tremble, what does all this mean? You are not going to do anything in haste you may regret. No, my good sir, said Mr. Pecksniff firmly, no. But I have a duty to discharge which I owe to society, and it shall be discharged, my friend, at any cost. Oh, late remembered, much forgotten, mouthing, braggart duty, always owed and seldom paid in any other coin than punishment and wrath, when will mankind begin to know thee? When will men acknowledge thee in thy neglected cradle and thy stunted youth, and not begin their recognition in thy sinful manhood and thy desolate old age? O ermined judge, whose duty to society is now to doom the ragged criminal to punishment and death, hadst thou never, man, a duty to discharge in barring up the hundred open gates that wooed him to the felon's dock, and throwing but ajar the portals to a decent life? O prelate, prelate, whose duty to society it is, to mourn in melancholy phrase the sad degeneracy of these bad times in which thy lot of honours has been cast. Did nothing go before thy elevation to the lofty seat, from which thou dealest out thy homilies to other terriers for dead men's shoes, whose duty to society has not begun? O oh, magistrate, so rare a country gentleman and brave a squire, had you no duty to society before the ricks were blazing and the mob were mad? Or did it spring up, armed and booted from the earth, a corps of yeomanry full-grown? Mr. Pecksniff's duty to society could not be paid till Tom came back. The interval which preceded the return of that young man he occupied in a close conference with his friend, so that when Tom did arrive he found the two quite ready to receive him. Mary was in her own room above, whither Mr. Pecksniff, always considerate, had besought old Martin to entreat her to remain some half-hour longer, that her feelings might be spared. When Tom came back, he found old Martin sitting by the window, and Mr. Pecksniff in an imposing attitude at the table. On one side of him was his pocket-handkerchief, and on the other a little heap, a very little heap, of gold and silver and odd pence. Tom saw at a glance that it was his own salary for the current quarter. "'Have you fastened the vestry window, Mr. Pinch?' said Pecksniff. "'Yes, sir.' "'Thank you. Put down the keys, if you please, Mr. Pinch.' Tom placed them on the table. He held the bunch by the key of the organ-loft, though it was one of the smallest, and looked hard at it as he laid it down. It had been an old, old friend of Tom's, a kind companion to him many and many a day. "'Mr. Pinch,' said Pecksniff, shaking his head. "'Oh, Mr. Pinch, I wonder you can look me in the face.' Tom did it, though, and notwithstanding that he has been described as stooping generally, he stood as upright then as man could stand. "'Mr. Pinch,' said Pecksniff, taking up his handkerchief, as if he felt that he should want it soon, "'I will not dwell upon the past. I will spare you, and I will spare myself that pain, at least.' Tom's was not a very bright eye, but it was a very expressive one when he looked at Mr. Pecksniff and said, "'Thank you, sir. I am very glad you will not refer to the past.' "'The present is enough,' said Mr. Pecksniff, dropping a penny." "'And the sooner that is past, the better, Mr. Pinch. "'I will not dismiss you without a word of explanation. 
Even such a course would be quite justifiable under the circumstances, but it might wear an appearance of hurry, and I will not do it. For I am, said Mr. Pecksniff, knocking down another penny, perfectly self-possessed. Therefore I will say to you what I have already said to Mr. Chuzzlewit. Tom glanced at the old gentleman, who nodded now and then as approving of Mr. Pecksniff's sentences and sentiments, but interposed between them in no other way. "'From fragments of a conversation which I overheard in the church just now, Mr. Pinch,' said Pecksniff, "'between yourself and Miss Graham. I say fragments because I was slumbering at a considerable distance from you when I was roused by your voices, and from what I saw I ascertained—I would have given a great deal not to have ascertained, Mr. Pinch—that you, forgetful of all ties of duty and of honour, sir, regardless of the sacred laws of hospitality to which you were pledged as an inmate of this house—' have presumed to address Miss Graham with unreturned professions of attachment and proposals of love. Tom looked at him steadily. "'Do you deny it, sir?' asked Mr. Pecksniff, dropping one pound, two, and fourpence, and making a great business of picking it up again. "'No, sir,' replied Tom, "'I do not.' "'You do not,' said Mr. Pecksniff, glancing at the old gentleman. "'Oblige me by counting this money, Mr. Pinch, and putting your name to this receipt. "'You do not?' No, Tom did not. He scorned to deny it. He saw that Mr. Pecksniff, having overheard his own disgrace, cared not a jot for sinking lower yet in his contempt. He saw that he had devised this fiction as the readiest means of getting rid of him at once, but that it must end in that anyway. He saw that Mr. Pecksniff reckoned on his not denying it, because his doing so and explaining would incense the old man more than ever against Martin and against Mary— while Pecksniff himself would only have been mistaken in his fragments. Deny it? No. "'You find the amount correct, do you, Mr. Pinch?' said Pecksniff. "'Quite correct, sir,' answered Tom. "'A person is waiting in the kitchen,' said Mr. Pecksniff, "'to carry your luggage wherever you please. We part, Mr. Pinch, at once, and are strangers from this time.' "'Something without a name—compassion, sorrow, old tenderness, mistaken gratitude—' habit. None of these, and yet all of them, smote upon Tom's gentle heart at parting. There was no such soul as Pecksniff's in that carcass, and yet, though his speaking out had not involved the compromise of one he loved, he couldn't have denounced the very shape and figure of the man, not even then. "'I will not say,' cried Mr. Pecksniff, shedding tears, "'what a blow this is. I will not say how much it tries me, how it works upon my nature,' how it grates upon my feelings. I do not care for that. I can endure as well as another man. But what I have to hope, and what you have to hope, Mr. Pinch, otherwise a great responsibility rests upon you, is that this deception may not alter my ideas of humanity, that it may not impair my freshness, or contract, if I may use the expression, my pinions. I hope it will not. I don't think it will." It may be a comfort to you, if not now, at some future time, to know that I shall endeavour not to think the worse of my fellow-creatures in general for what has passed between us. Farewell. Tom had meant to spare him one little punctuation with a lancet, which he had it in his power to administer, but he changed his mind on hearing this, and said, "'I think you left something in the church, sir.' "'Thank you, Mr. Pinch,' said Pecksniff. "'I am not aware that I did.' "'This is your double eyeglass, I believe,' said Tom. "'Oh!' cried Pecksniff, with some degree of confusion. "'I am obliged to you. Put it down, if you please.' "'I found it,' said Tom slowly, "'when I went to bolt the vestry window.' 
in the pew. So he had. Mr. Pecksniff had taken it off when he was bobbing up and down, lest it should strike against the panelling, and had forgotten it. Going back to the church, with his mind full of having been watched, and wondering very much from what part, Tom's attention was caught by the door of the state pew standing open. Looking into it, he found the glass, and thus he knew, and by returning it gave Mr. Pecksniff the information that he knew, where the listener had been, and that instead of overhearing fragments of the conversation, he must have rejoiced in every word of it. "'I am glad he's gone,' said Martin, drawing a long breath when Tom had left the room. "'It is a relief,' assented Mr. Pecksniff. "'It is a great relief. "'But having discharged, I hope with tolerable firmness, "'the duty which I owed to society, "'I will now, my dear sir, if you will give me leave, "'retire to shed a few tears in the back garden "'as an humble individual.' "'Tom went upstairs, cleared his shelf of books, "'packed them up with his music and an old fiddle in his trunk, "'got out his clothes, "'they were not so many that they made his head ache, put them on the top of his books, and went into the workroom for his case of instruments. There was a ragged stool there, with the horsehair all sticking out of the top like a wig, a very beast of a stool in itself, on which he had taken up his daily seat, year after year, during the whole period of his service. They had grown older and shabbier in company. Pupils had served their time, seasons had come and gone, Tom and the worn-out stool had held together through it all, that part of the room was traditionally called Tom's Corner. It had been assigned to him at first because of its being situated in a strong draught and a great way from the fire, and he had occupied it ever since. There were portraits of him on the walls, with all his weak points monstrously portrayed. Diabolical sentiments foreign to his character were represented as issuing from his mouth in fat balloons. Every pupil had added something, even unto fancy portraits of his father with one eye and of his mother with a disproportionate nose, and especially of his sister, who, always being presented as extremely beautiful, made full amends to Tom for any other jokes. Under less uncommon circumstances it would have cut Tom to the heart to leave these things and think that he saw them for the last time, but it didn't now. There was no Pecksniff. There never had been a Pecksniff and all his other griefs were swallowed up in that. So when he returned into the bedroom, and having fastened his box and a carpet-bag, put on his walking gaiters and his great coat, and his hat, and taken his stick in his hand, looked round it for the last time. Early on summer mornings, and by the light of private candle-ends on winter nights, he had read himself half-blind in this same room. He had tried in this same room to learn the fiddle under the bedclothes, but yielding to objections from the other pupils, had reluctantly abandoned the design. At any other time he would have parted from it with a pang, thinking of all he had learned there, of the many hours he had passed there, for the love of his very dreams. But there was no Pecksniff, there never had been a Pecksniff, and the unreality of Pecksniff extended itself to the chamber, in which, sitting on one particular bed, the thing supposed to be that great abstraction had often preached morality with such effect that Tom had felt a moisture in his eyes while hanging breathless on the words. The man engaged to bear his box, Tom knew him well, a dragon man, came stamping up the stairs and made a roughish bow to Tom, to whom in common times he would have nodded with a grin, as though he were aware of what had happened and wished him to perceive it made no difference to him. It was clumsily done. He was a mere waterer of horses, 
but Tom liked the man for it, and felt it more than going away. Tom would have helped him with the box, but he made no more of it, though it was a heavy one, than an elephant would have made of a castle, just swinging it on his back and bowling downstairs, as if, being naturally a heavy sort of fellow, he could carry a box infinitely better than he could go alone. Tom took the carpet-bag and went downstairs along with him. At the outer door stood Jane, crying with all her might, and on the steps was Mrs. Lupin, sobbing bitterly, and putting out her hand for Tom to shake. "'You're coming to the dragon, Mr. Pinch.' "'No,' said Tom, "'no. I shall walk to Salisbury to-night. I couldn't stay here. For goodness sake, don't make me so unhappy, Mrs. Lupin.' "'But you'll come to the dragon, Mr. Pinch, if it's only for to-night. To see me, you know, not as a traveller. "'God bless my soul,' said Tom, wiping his eyes. "'The kindness of people is enough to break one's heart. "'I mean to go to Salisbury to-night, my dear good creature. "'If you'll take care of my box for me till I write for it, "'I shall consider it the greatest kindness you can do me.' "'I wish,' cried Mrs. Lupin, "'there were twenty boxes, Mr. Pinch, that I might have them all.' "'Thank ye,' said Tom. "'It's like you.' "'Good-bye. Good-bye.' There were several people, young and old, standing about the door, some of whom cried with Mrs. Lupin, while others tried to keep up a stout heart, as Tom did, and others were absorbed in admiration of Mr. Pecksniff, a man who could build a church, as one may say, by squinting at a sheet of paper, and others were divided between that feeling and sympathy with Tom. Mr. Pecksniff had appeared on the top of the steps, simultaneously with his old pupil, and while Tom was talking with Mrs. Lupin, kept his hand stretched out, as though he said, "'Go forth!' When Tom went forth, and had turned the corner, Mr. Pecksniff shook his head, shut his eyes, and, heaving a deep sigh, shut the door, on which the best of Tom's supporters said he must have done some dreadful deed, or such a man as Mr. Pecksniff never could have felt like that. If it had been a common quarrel, they observed, he would have said something, but when he didn't, Mr. Pinch must have shocked him dreadfully. Tom was out of hearing of their shrewd opinions, and plodded on as steadily as he could go, until he came within sight of the turnpike, where the Tolman's family had cried out, "'Mr. Pinch!' that frosty morning, when he went to meet young Martin. He had got through the village, and this toll-bar was his last trial.' but when the infant toll-takers came screeching out, he had half a mind to run for it and make a bolt across the country. "'Why, dearie, Mr. Pinch! Oh, dearie, sir!' cried the tollman's wife. "'What an unlikely time for you to be a-going this way with a bag!' "'I am going to Salisbury,' said Tom. "'Why, goodness, where's the gig, then?' cried the tollman's wife, looking down the road as if she thought Tom might have been upset without observing it. "'I haven't got it,' said Tom. "'I—' He couldn't evade it. He felt she would have him in the next question, if he got over this one. I have left Mr. Pecksniff. The tollman, a crusty customer, always smoking solitary pipes in a Windsor chair inside, sat artfully between two little windows that looked up and down the road, so that when he saw anything coming up he might hug himself on having toll to take, and when he saw it going down might hug himself on having taken it. The tollman was out in an instant. Left Mr. Pecksniff! cried the tollman. Yes, said Tom, left him. The tollman looked at his wife, uncertain whether to ask her if she had anything to suggest, or to order her to mind the children. Astonishment making him surly, he preferred the latter, and sent her into the toll-house with a flea in her ear. You left Mr. Pecksniff, cried the tollman, folding his arms and spreading his legs. 
"'I should as soon have thought of his head leaving him.' "'Aye,' said Tom, "'so should I. "'Yesterday. "'Good night.' "'If a heavy drove of oxen hadn't come by immediately, "'the tollman would have gone down to the village straight to inquire into it. "'As things turned out, he smoked another pipe "'and took his wife into his confidence. "'But their united sagacity could make nothing of it, "'and they went to bed, metaphorically, in the dark.' But several times that night, when a wagon or other vehicle came through, and the driver asked the toll-keeper, "'What news?' he looked at the man by the light of his lantern to assure himself that he had an interest in the subject, and then said, wrapping his watch-coat round his legs, "'You've heard of Mr. Pecksniff down yonder?' "'Ah, surely.' "'And of his young man, Mr. Pinch, perhaps?' "'Ah. They parted.' After every one of these disclosures, the tollman plunged into his house again and was seen no more, while the other side went on in great amazement. But this was long after Tom was abed, and Tom was now with his face towards Salisbury, doing his best to get there. The evening was beautiful at first, but it became cloudy and dull at sunset, and the rain fell heavily soon afterwards. For ten long miles he plodded on, wet through, until at last the lights appeared, and he came into the welcome precincts of the city. He went to the inn where he had waited for Martin, and, briefly answering their inquiries after Mr. Pecksniff, ordered a bed. He had no heart for tea or supper, meat or drink of any kind, but sat by himself before an empty table in the public room, while the bed was getting ready, revolving in his mind all that had happened that eventful day, and wondering what he could or should do for the future. It was a great relief when the chambermaid came in and said the bed was ready. It was a low four-poster, shelving downward in the centre like a trough, and the room was crowded with impracticable tables and exploded chests of drawers, full of damp linen. A graphic representation in oil of a remarkably fat ox hung over the fireplace, and a portrait of some former landlord, who might have been the ox's brother, he was so like him, stared roundly in at the foot of the bed. A variety of queer smells were partially quenched in the prevailing scent of very old lavender, and the window had not been opened for such a long space of time that it pleaded immemorial usage and wouldn't come open now. These were trifles in themselves, but they added to the strangeness of the place, and did not induce Tom to forget his new position. Pecksniff had gone out of the world, had never been in it, and it was as much as Tom could do to say his prayers without him, but he felt happier afterwards, and went to sleep, and dreamed about him as he never was. End of chapter 31